This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Connecticut is one of those states I know virtually nothing about, aside from its importance during colonial times. There is also a podcast I listen to and love dearly that I'll shout out at the end, whose hosts live in this tiny chunk of land on the East Coast. The name Connecticut is derived from a Mohegan word that means Long River Place. It is referred to as the Constitution State because of a document known as the Fundamental Orders. This document is considered by many to be the first written constitution of a democratic government. Connecticut would go on to play large roles in creating other documents, such as the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. As far as the death penalty goes, they have a pretty interesting history. Back in the 1600s, people were hung for witchcraft. Other crimes that could result in capital punishment in this era were sodomy, idolatry, and blasphemy. Colonial Americans sure loved their religion. There has only been one execution in Connecticut since the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty in 1976. Had this man just held on a little longer and kept appealing, there's a chance he could have been spared. But I'll tell you all about him later on in this episode. Connecticut abolished the death penalty for future crimes on April 25, 2012, and then the Supreme Court struck down the remaining death sentences in 2015. The most you can get now is life without parole, but I'm pretty sure we'll find some people in Connecticut who probably deserve to meet their end by a government-funded needle. It is believed that the youngest person ever executed in the U.S. was a Connecticut-born girl named Hannah Ocuish. Hannah was born to an African-American father and a Pequot Native American mother in 1773. She had a hard life, as you can probably imagine. Her mother was an alcoholic who would periodically abandon her children. After a violent incident occurred where six-year-old Hannah and her older brother attacked a little girl, stole her clothes, and nearly beat her to death, the children were separated and sent to work as indentured servants. Hannah ended up in New London doing the tasks of a servant for the white family she lived with. This made her bitter. She resented all the little white children who got to play, go to school, and enjoy seasonal activities while she was left to clean up all kinds of messes and wait on them. Eunice Bowles was a six-year-old girl who Hannah had grown to despise. There had been an incident where Eunice had caught Hannah sneaking strawberries into her pocket while working out in the field. The younger girl ran and told the adults. Hannah denied everything, but she was still punished with one switch and a handful of birch twigs for each strawberry she took. This wasn't the first time Hannah had done something wrong. She had a history of stealing, lying, and being violent. She had a reputation for being a bully. After the incident with the strawberries, Hannah wanted revenge. One day, in July of 1786, as little Eunice walked to school, Hannah saw her chance for revenge. She tempted the little girl with a piece of calico fabric before beating her with a rock. Eunice cried out for mercy, telling Hannah, If you keep beating me so, I shall die. 
but Hannah didn't care. She wanted revenge for the lashing she had received over the strawberries. After Eunice lost consciousness from the beating, Hannah briefly stopped attacking her before finishing her off by choking her to death. When Eunice's body was discovered, she was quickly identified and taken home to her parents. Her skull was fractured, her back and arm were broken, and she had fingernail marks in her throat. The scene of her murder had been staged to make it look like a piece of stone wall had fallen on her. Officials began to question everyone in the vicinity, and Hannah Okuish told them an interesting story. Apparently, she had seen four boys acting strangely in a garden belonging to her mistress, and they ran away when Hannah yelled at them. Shortly after this, she heard the sound of a stone wall falling over. Authorities tried to locate the boys, but were unsuccessful. Hannah quickly became a suspect. She denied everything, though, and stuck to the story she'd initially given. It wasn't until the police took her to view the body that she confessed to the abhorrent crime she had committed. Upon seeing Eunice's body, Hannah burst into tears and told the truth. She had only intended to give Eunice a whipping as revenge for getting her in trouble. She apologized and swore she would never kill again. Hannah was charged with first-degree murder and pleaded not guilty. She was held in prison while she awaited her trial. Though she was so young, she adapted very well to prison life. Visitors would come and Hannah would chat to them. She appeared very happy. She didn't seem at all concerned with her potential punishment. Probably thought she'd get another round of birch twigs or whatever the hell else they could find to whip her with. Hannah knew the punishment for this crime was death, but she assumed she'd be spared due to the fact that she was only 12 and a girl. Maybe she should have considered that some of the other young people who were hung only committed acts of arson and buggery with farm animals. And while banging a cow is fucking gross, it's not quite as bad as beating a little girl to death with a rock. Hannah really had no chance of living through this. Race was a huge issue at the time. About 80% of the people executed were non-whites, and they were executed for much less egregious crimes such as robbery, attempted rape, and burglary. Whites were only executed for murder. I brought this up in the Alaska episode as well. A handful of people on the execution list in Connecticut are either unnamed or don't have their crime listed, but their race is something other than white. Hannah was convicted of first-degree murder. The judge briefly mentioned her age and said it wasn't a reason to give her any leniency. In his words, The sparing of you on account of your age would, as the law says, be of dangerous consequence to the public by holding up an idea that children might commit such atrocious crimes with impunity. The court also added, and you must consider that after death, you must undergo another trial, infinitely more solemn and awful than what you have here passed through, before that God against whom you offended, at whose bar the deceased child will appear as a swift witness against you, and you will be condemned and consigned to an everlasting punishment, unless you now obtain a pardon, by confessing and sincerely repenting of your sins, and applying to his sovereign grace through the merits of his Son, Jesus Christ, for mercy, who is able and willing to save the greatest offenders who repent and believe in him. There it is again, some more of that colonial religion. The judge handed down his sentence in which he said to Hannah, You will be hanged by a rope from the neck until you are dead, dead, dead. 
The onlookers were shocked, but Hannah showed little emotion. A young minister had taken an interest in Hannah and had been visiting her. As her execution neared, he wrote, About a fortnight before her execution, she appeared to realize her danger and was more concerned for herself. She continued nearly in the same state until the Monday night before her execution, when she appeared greatly affected, saying that she was distressed for her soul. She continued in tears most of Tuesday and Wednesday, which was the day of execution. Hannah Akuish was executed by hanging on December 19, 1786. Her friend, Reverend Channing, preached a sermon where he urged parents to take control of their kids as Hannah's depravity was the result of her being ungoverned. He then addressed the young girl directly, saying, Hannah, the time for you to die is come. Your eyes will be shut by death, and you will not see the light of this sun again forever. Be ashamed before God of your crimes, poor girl. Farewell. May God in his abundant goodness give you repentance unto life and have mercy on your soul. In her final moments, she began looking around as if she was expecting someone to help her out of this terrifying situation. But as the noose tightened around her neck, she regained her composure and thanked the sheriff for his kindness. Those were her last words. I can't find anything on her last meal. The knee-jerk reaction to this execution is quite obviously that it was wrong. She was a child. But you have to ask yourself, if she was capable of murdering a six-year-old at the age of 12 over something as small as getting narked on for stealing strawberries, what else might her future have held? As shocking as it is, did they make the right decision? As a society, and as a country, we've come a long way since the 1700s. Gone are the days of hanging people for witchcraft, which, let me just tell you, was a lot more common than you'd think. You've heard of the Salem Witch Trials. Well, that shit was all over colonial America, not just in Salem. People in history have been executed for things we don't bat an eye at today. In the current era, the only thing that'll get you put down is murder and some argue that even taking the life of another isn't a valid reason to condemn a person to die. You know where I stand on this one. Some people need to be put down. This next guy I'm going to tell you about is an anomaly in Connecticut death penalty lore. He was sent to death row not once, but twice. Some would even argue three times. The first time was for a murder he committed in 1950. A man by the name of Louis Wolfson owned a liquor store in West Hartford. Joseph Taborski and his brother Albert decided to rob the liquor store and Louis was a casualty. Arthur testified against his brother in exchange for a life sentence. Joseph would be sent to death row, but later appealed his sentence after he learned that Albert had shown signs of mental illness and had been sent to an insane asylum. His sentence and his conviction were reversed because the sole witness against him was incurably insane. There were no other witnesses, so the state couldn't try Joseph for this crime again. When he was released from death row in 1955, he appeared to be very humble. You can't beat the law. I'm not even going to get a parking ticket. Money is the sole motive behind what Taborski did. All of the things he did. 
He was a criminal from the age of seven, stealing tricycles and raising hell until he was in his 20s and part of a gang that terrorized local businesses. His promise to straighten up and fly right was broken just a year after he was released from death row. Shop owners in Hartford mysteriously started dying again. During an ice storm on December 15th, a tailor was shot in the head and neck but thankfully survived. On this same day, Taborski would rob a gas station and kill the attendant, Edward Kropiewski, and a customer, Daniel Janowski, by shooting them both in the head. Thankfully, he had enough compassion to spare Janowski's 14-month-old daughter. They were found the next day by a bus driver. Just 11 days later, the day after Christmas, a liquor store owner named Sam Cohn was shot dead during a robbery. On January 5th, a tall man entered a shoe store in East Hartford and asked for a pair of size 12 shoes. He then pistol-whipped the owner. Bernard and Ruth Speyer, who had gone shoe shopping that day, were unfortunately caught up in this robbery. They were both shot in the head. A month later, a pharmacist named Jack Rosenthal died in his drugstore from a gunshot wound to the chest. Police only had one real lead in this case. The assailant wore size 12 shoes. Back in this era, detectives had to be creative with their work. They didn't have cell phone records and DNA testing, so they checked the list of all ex-cons in Connecticut to see who wore size 12s. This search led them to Joseph Taborski. The shoe store owner also picked his accomplice. I'm going to fuck this name up, so just be prepared. Arthur Colomb out of a photo lineup. He was unable to pick Taborski out of the photos, but that didn't matter. Arthur confessed to his involvement in eight robberies and six murders, but insisted that he was only along for the ride. He claimed Taborski was the one murdering people and laughing while he did it. Eventually, Taborski would confess to his crimes, including the murder of Lewis Wolfson in 1950. The trial lasted nine weeks, which ended in both men being sentenced to death. A superstitious prisoner named Benny Reed, who had been convicted of beating an elderly woman to death, spoke to Taborski before he was led away to his demise. While crying, Benny said, I'm going to say a prayer for you, Joe. And Taborski replied, Don't worry about it. I'll be back as a fly as soon as it's over. Joseph Taborski was executed by electrocution on May 17, 1960. His execution was graphic, as you can probably imagine. Being zapped to death isn't quick and easy. It's drawn out, painful, and very animated. No pun intended. Taborski was strapped into the chair, and a metal helmet resembling a mixing bowl was placed over his head. A black mask covered his face. The executioner pulled the switch, and Taborski thrashed around in the chair. His body caught on fire. After three zaps, the guard tore open Taborski's shirt so they could check his heart. His skin was blue. At 10.36 p.m., he was pronounced dead. Just moments later, Benny Reed let out a scream. There was a fly on his ceiling. Benny ended up being hospitalized for psychiatric care because it freaked him out so bad. Taborski's eyes were donated to someone in need of a transplant. It's a noble act, but I don't know who would want to see the world through a criminal's eyes. I can't find anything on his last words, but his last meal was a big banana split and a cherry soda. It wouldn't be a last meal without an 80s serial killer. 
pretty sure every state has at least one, and this one has a lot of the same issues we're used to seeing in violent psychopaths. This guy was raised on a chicken farm, which actually sounds pretty cool. I had chickens when I was growing up. Unfortunately for him, he was born into a very dysfunctional family. The matriarch of this household had abandoned the family and at one point was also institutionalized. She beat all of her children, but saved the worst of it for her son Michael. To go along with this abuse, Michael had also been molested by his teenage uncle who then committed suicide. Though his childhood was not easy at all, Michael excelled in school. He went on to graduate and go to Cornell University. He graduated from there in May of 1981. An antisocial child turned into an antisocial adult who became an insurance salesman. That seems fitting. During his sophomore year of college, he started stalking the women on campus. This continued on into his senior year when he committed his first rape. His first murder would take place on May 12, 1981. A 25-year-old student originally from Vietnam named Zung No Tu was last seen reading a newspaper in Warren Hall. Zung's family had left war-torn Vietnam in the late 60s and settled in Bethesda, Maryland. She studied agricultural economics at Cornell and had plans to take her knowledge back to Vietnam to help her home country grow. She had a large extended family who was very proud of her. Friends described her as being very bright and sweet. One friend told an interviewer, it angers me that he picked on someone so small, so polite. Her body was found five days after she was last seen in Fall Creek Gorge. Her death was initially labeled a suicide, which angered her friends and family. It would be eight months before the roadside strangler struck again. This time he went after Tammy Williams, a 17-year-old girl walking home from her boyfriend's house. Tammy was said to have a heart of gold. She was a fun person to be around. She was found raped and strangled sometime after she disappeared on January 5, 1982. The next woman to be attacked would thankfully walk away with her life. Michael had gotten a job on an egg farm in Ohio. On April 2nd, he went to the home of a pregnant off-duty policewoman claiming that his car had broken down. She gave him a flashlight and he sauntered off to go fix his car. He came back a short while later and asked to use the phone. Michael gained the woman's trust by telling her his name and where he worked. At this point, he assaulted her. Thankfully, the woman was able to fight him off and the attack didn't end up being more than just a fight. Because she was able to give a description of the man as well as his name, police located him the next day. Michael was charged with assault, but his parents bailed him out, of course. Violence breeds violence. After 16 days of psychiatric study, it was determined that Michael had psychological problems. Boy, what gave that away? He would blame his parents' divorce, and despite knowing about his sexual behavior, very little was done to keep an eye on him or get him any help. The police dropped the ball on this one, like they often do. 16-year-old Paula Pereira was the third victim to die by Michael's hand. She was known to be a bubbly and confident young woman who did well in school despite her turbulent home life. Her problems peaked in 1981 and she attempted suicide by overdosing on pills. 
The students who rode the bus with Paula mocked her by calling her Tylenol. Teenagers are shitty. That's so sad. Because of this harassment, Paula started hitchhiking to school. She would get in the wrong car on March 1st, 1982 and never be seen again. Almost three weeks later, her badly injured body was found off of Route 211 in Wallkill, New York. She had been raped, sodomized, and strangled to death. Deborah Taylor and her husband ran out of gas on June 15, 1982, in Danielson, Connecticut. They split up to look for a gas station, and Deborah was abducted while walking on the side of the road. She was raped and strangled to death. Her skeletal remains were found by a jogger four months later. In August of 1982, Michael finally had to face his assault charge. He was slapped with a $1,000 fine and spent four months in jail before being released on probation. The probation report suggested that he should find some hobbies to occupy his time in the hopes that it would help him keep the violence to a minimum. What a pointless thing to do. Clearly, a sexual sadist isn't going to get the same satisfaction from building model planes as they do from raping and murdering. Michael found a job as a door-to-door -door insurance salesman and managed to lie about his criminal record on his application. It's believed that Michael found his next victim while looking for potential clients. Robin Stavinsky was a 19-year-old woman who was hitchhiking in Norwich, Connecticut. Michael abducted her on November 19, 1983 and dumped her body near a local hospital. She had been raped and strangled. Because of the similarities between Robin's case and the others, authorities were able to link them. All victims had been raped, sodomized, and strangled, then left face down. Though they had their MO, they didn't have their suspect yet. On Easter Sunday, 1984, Michael would commit his first double murder. Two 14-year-old friends, April Bernays and Leslie Shelley, were walking to a friend's house from a movie theater when Michael abducted them both. When their bodies were found, it was very clear that they had suffered a brutal rape and similar death to the other victims. Michael was predictable, and it would become very easy to connect him to all these murders once they had a description of him. His last victim was 17-year-old Wendy Baribault. I'm not sure I got that last name right. I'm not French, and that looks French, so, you know, don't give me too much shit. <laughs> Wendy was walking down State Highway 12 in Lisbon when a thin white man wearing glasses and driving a blue Toyota was seen following her. She had been on her way to a convenience store. Her body was found four days later, and she had suffered the same fate as all seven of the other women Michael had killed. A list was printed of everyone in the local area who drove a late model blue Toyota. Coincidentally, Michael Bruce Ross was the first person Detective Michael Malchik visited on June 28, 1984. He was immediately suspicious of the man. I would be too. If you look this guy up, he looks like Dahmer. The visit was a roller coaster ride. Michael kept dropping little bits of information that led Detective Malchik to ask more questions. It didn't take very long before Michael let out some of his secrets. He initially only confessed to Wendy's murder. While in police custody, he confessed to five more. It would be years before he finally admitted guilt in Zung and Paula's murders. In July of 1987, he went on trial for the murders of Deborah and Tammy. 
He pled guilty and was given 120 years. In August, he was put on trial for Wendy, April, Leslie, and Robin. It was here that he be given two life sentences and six death sentences. Michael was irritated with the court for not recognizing his mental illness. He also claimed that the jury was biased and some of the testimony given was grossly inaccurate. Michael claimed that if the testimony of his psychiatrist had been allowed into the trial, the jury may not have recommended the death penalty. Maybe his mental illness would have been a mitigating factor. He filed many complaints and requested a new trial. Eventually his case would make it all the way to the High Court. In July of 1994, the Supreme Court of Connecticut decided to uphold his convictions but overturn his death sentence. Apparently the court agreed with him that evidence had been withheld that could have shown his mental issues. It was no secret that Michael was disturbed. Even as a child, he had fantasies about kidnapping women and keeping them underground so they'd be forced to love him. When he was a teenager, he molested several girls in his neighborhood, and as an adult, his fantasies became more violent. We know what he did, this is no surprise to me. The reason he was so disturbed has been disputed. Some say it's due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. Others think it was related to the anger he felt toward his mother. Perhaps it was a little of both. Michael claimed that he hated having the violent fantasies and that after he had gotten sexual release from acting them out, he'd be overwhelmed with shame and disgust. He wanted to die to be free from the mental anguish it caused him. He had gone so far as to take birth control pills to lower testosterone and help alleviate some of his violent urges. This man had fought to get a new trial because he thought his mental illness was a mitigating factor, but after using the contraceptive medication, he was able to step outside the bubble of sadism and violence and see just how much damage he had done. It was at this point he decided to sign a death pact with the prosecutor, which would ultimately skip over a new penalty hearing and send him straight to the death chamber. A superior court judge threw out this death pact because it was unconstitutional and unsettling. Despite Michael's desire to avoid another hearing, the court forced him to have one. If he was sane enough to be tried in court, and sane enough to get a death sentence, why are we questioning his mental state now? He acknowledged how fucked up his crimes were and was willing to pay the price. In April 1999, the new penalty phase of the trial was scheduled. This same month, Michael changed his mind and decided he didn't want to be executed. Because of this, his defense attorneys went with their original plan of using mental illness as a mitigating factor to get him out of the death sentence. The state stood on the opposite end of the spectrum and tried to prove there were aggravating factors that would deem Michael deserving of the ultimate punishment. Ten months of jury selection and legal nonsense later, the prosecution would finally get to present their evidence. It took them three days to lay out their case for the jury. They included testimony from victims' families, as well as an interview Michael had done with the BBC where he explained how badly he had tormented his victims. While these were strong points, the defense was able to counter them by putting Michael's prison psychiatrist on the stand. He explained that Michael suffered from sexual sadism, which was controlled by medication. This proved the defense's point that Michael was mentally ill and therefore shouldn't be put to death. 
Michael's father also took the stand and argued that his son was a biological specimen that could be studied to give insight into the mind of a serial killer. Both sides made good points, but the jury would ultimately decide that what Michael did was bad enough to warrant a death sentence. Michael was transferred to a prison in Orange County, New York to plead guilty and face his sentence for one of the two murders he committed outside of Connecticut, the murder of Paula Pereira. He was given, get this, 8 to 25 years for raping, sodomizing, and murdering a 16-year-old girl. The state also decided against charging him with Zung's murder because he had already been sentenced to death in Connecticut. What the fuck, Colorado? Oh wait, wrong state. The Supreme Court upheld the previous death sentence in 2004, and a year later, Michael would be scheduled for execution. The original date was set for January 26, 2005. Michael had given up on his appeals and finally accepted his fate. Michael Bruce Ross was executed by lethal injection on May 13, 2005, after fighting to get out of the death penalty for 20 years. In addition to being the first person executed in Connecticut since Joseph Taborski in 1960, he was the last person in Connecticut to be put to death. He declined to offer any final words. His last meal was the same thing that everyone else in the prison ate that day. Turkey a la king with rice, mixed vegetables, white bread, fruit, and an unspecified beverage. Michael Ross might not have been able to use his mental illness to escape death, but another Connecticut man would in 2013. Despite abolishing future death sentences in 2012, I imagine this man's crime would have the state questioning that decision. Tyree Smith wanted to write a book detailing his experiences in life all the crazy things that had happened to him over the years. He had a typical childhood for someone who grew up on the East Coast in the 80s. His home was a housing project in Connecticut. School wasn't his thing, so he only completed three years of public high school before joining a Job Corps program. Honestly, not a bad decision if you ask me. I'm also a high school dropout. I got my GED instead of job skills, though. Smith later moved to California and worked as a model. While here, he had a son. Unfortunately, things didn't work out exactly as he wanted, and in 2007, he caught a charge for assaulting his girlfriend. He was convicted, but only sentenced to probation. It was clear to others that Smith had mental issues. While it is unconfirmed if he sought treatment while living in California, a Facebook post from September 2010 states, On my way to the shrinks now. See you later, guys. Maybe he did. Maybe it was bullshit. Who knows? His priority was his book, but there were struggles. Another Facebook post reads, I've tried really hard to write this book. First, I lose 150 pages worth of work. Now, somehow, my flash drive to back it up is missing. It has about 300 pages worth of work on it. I really do hope I misplaced it, which I can't see due to the fact I do not move anything on my desk. I'm not going to accuse my son, as I somehow always do when something turns up missing. Just eight hours later, he would post again when he found his flash drive. Okay, I drink a lot, but there's no way in hell this flash drive was sitting literally in front of me like this. All I had to do is raise my head. It was even eye level, too. 
Okay, I'm done being paranoid. Thanks again. I should stop playing so many war games. Something was off about Tyree Smith. Neighbors who knew him when he lived in Florida commented that he would stand outside drinking wine and staring up at the sky. Okay, so two things. First, don't knock it till you try it. Second, this is Florida. Isn't that like a common thing? Or is it just people climbing trees while high on flocka that's normal? Anyway, on December 15th, 2011, Smith showed up to his cousin's apartment in Bridgeport, Connecticut. His cousin, Nicole, said that he was all out of sorts, drinking sake out of a bottle and talking about a book he was writing. A book about rape, murder, and Greek gods. The book bag he was carrying had a small axe inside. He told Nicole he needed to get blood on his hands. I guess Smith didn't end up staying with his cousin that night. I can't say I blame her for kicking him out. So he went to the apartment building that he used to live in. It was now boarded up and abandoned. While sleeping outside, he was woken up by a homeless man named Angel Gonzalez, who invited him to come sleep inside the building instead of out in the cold. Angel had also lived in the building before it was boarded up and was a beloved person in the neighborhood. When Smith went inside, he heard a voice tell him, This is your blood. Smith would return to his cousin Nicole's house for dinner the next night. While sitting at the table, he told her that he got his blood. He described in detail what had happened the night before. Smith had used the axe in his book bag to attack Angel Gonzalez. He hacked at him and consumed pieces of his body, including an eye and part of his brain. Smith told his cousin that the rush he got was unlike anything else and that he had a sexual lust for blood. Obviously, Nicole kicked him out of the house. Not sure why she didn't immediately call the cops, but people react to fear in different ways. The next day, Smith's mother, Cheryl, called and asked that a welfare check be done on her son at the abandoned apartment building as Nicole had told her what he'd done. The cops responded to the building but were unable to get inside as it had been boarded up. Cheryl told her son to get some help and reported that he had gone to Bridgeport Hospital but left without being treated. He also checked into St. Vincent's Hospital and two days later was seen filling prescriptions at a CVS. It was here that he was found in an aisle, bleeding profusely from an injury that he had inflicted on his wrist with a box cutter. He was treated and sent back to St. Vincent's before being released back into the public. Smith made his way back down to Florida and met up with a friend that he had stayed with previously, a woman named Michelle. One of her neighbors recalled seeing Smith skipping in the road and holding hands with her. He said, I was excited for him because, you know, I didn't know much about him except he was a bit strange and a little different, but, you know, everybody marches to the beat of a different drum. I told my son, I'm really glad he had somebody. It's awful to think that somebody has to go through life alone. It was so nice to see he had somebody to share his life with. A different neighbor witnessed Smith's arrest the following evening. U.S. Marshals had been keeping an eye on the apartment and had questioned the man about whether or not Smith was living there. He was brought down to the federal courthouse to verify that Smith was who the police thought he was. Upon returning home, the neighbor bumped into Smith at the mailbox and immediately called the U.S. Marshals. They picked him up and he spent a short time in Bay County Jail before being flown back to Bridgeport. Michelle was very disturbed by what had happened. She claimed that Smith had been receiving mental health services and was back on medication. 
She blamed the state for dropping the ball by letting him back out onto the streets. According to the neighbor who witnessed the arrest, Michelle told him that Smith was a computer hacker who was associated with Julian Assange. This man clearly has a few screws loose. According to a psychiatrist at Yale University, Smith was hearing voices that told him to kill specific people. A pedophile priest and a cop he thought was involved in drugs. His family was so concerned about his mental health that they contacted the authorities in California and had his young son taken from him. Around this time, Smith was working on his book, titled The Book of Michael. The psychiatrist testified that the book was nonsensical and there was absolutely no meaning that could be derived from it. Smith told his psychiatrist that he wanted to eat others because he had already crossed the line and that he even considered eating her. The voices Smith was hearing during the murder of Angel Gonzalez told him to eat the brain so they would get a better understanding of human behavior and the eyes so that they could see into the spirit realm. Tyree Lincoln Smith was found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect on September 11, 2013. He was sentenced to 60 years in a high-security mental health facility. Due to his age, it is very likely that he will die there. No last meal for this one. No last words. Just some weird book and cannibalistic tendencies. I think the state handled this one pretty well, especially if you look at Vince Lee in Canada. That motherfucker is back out walking the streets again thanks to the liberal policies of the Great White North. But Tyree Smith won't ever walk the streets again, and for that I'm very grateful. An innocent man, trying to do a good deed for a fellow human, was hacked to death with an axe and cannibalized. I don't care how out of his mind the killer was, he should not be allowed back into society. Well, that one was a wild ride. Before I go, I'd like to shout out the Shedcast. They're a couple of guys from Connecticut who rap, smoke weed in a shed, and talk about dumb shit. One of my favorite things to listen to at work aside from true crime. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and review wherever you found me. I'm available on Rumble as well as most places you can get podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram at lastmealpod. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.